Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we'll be speaking with guest expert Alyssa Smith. She's a 20th century U.S. violence and crime researcher for the History Department at the University of Chicago. Let's hear what she has to say about the Betty Broderick murders. Hi, Alyssa. Thank you so much for joining us today. How's it going? Good. So can we start off by having you tell our listeners about your particular area of study? Absolutely. Um, First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. My name is Alyssa Smith. Um, I'm a doctoral candidate in history at the University of Chicago, and I study histories of violence, social movements, and pop culture in the United States. So my research as a historian focuses on popular narratives about spectacle murder cases like this one, and especially how those narratives affected society and culture in the U.S. from about like 1969 to 2000. So because that's my area, I'm mostly going to be talking about the information that like regular folks consumed about this case as it was happening rather than um, details or or facts in a legal sense. How do you define the term spectacle murder? And do the uh, Betty Broderick murders fall into that category? Sure. So spectacle murder is a a term that I'm I'm still kind of tossing around and trying to figure out what it means. But what I'm referring to when I think about that term is cases that 
people who lived through them generally tend to remember. So, you know, you, you have already done episodes on like the Manson family, for example, that's the sort of um, quintessential example of this type of case, one in which there's so much media coverage that people have opinions about what's happening. Um, they're becoming sort of invested in the criminal legal system and the ways that it's dealing with violent crime because of their experiences watching or hearing these crimes be discussed on TV or on the radio and eventually on the internet. So by spectacle, I mean a case that is so visually loud that people feel that they're participating in it. And I think that the Betty Broderick murders uh, I, you know, full disclosure, I actually was not very familiar with them before I came to talk with you. But I think that this case is really connected to some other cases that I know better. And I do think it certainly falls within this realm of a case that people are tuning in regularly to find updates for and talking to each other in their communities about like, who, you know, well, is she really guilty? Is she not guilty? Is she, is it, if she is guilty, does she, you know, was this actually like justified in some way? These are, these are questions that are starting to, during the seventies, eighties and nineties, like violent crime as it's being reported is starting to produce these questions in a way that like is enacted through like politics a lot of the time. So I would definitely consider Betty Broderick uh, a spectacle murder case, but you know, it's, it has its own particularities, which I also am excited to talk about. Well, let's start off by talking about the cases that you said were similar. I guess I'll start first by saying that most of the spectacle cases that I look at, actually, I think all of them, are uh, involve white perpetrators. Um, and these are often crimes against white women and white children. So this is a really interesting case because it's like a little bit of the inversion of that. It's a white woman who enacts violence, like essentially within her own family. And in that way, it doesn't really fit a lot of these other cases like the Manson family or these like stranger crimes that become, you know, a, a huge archetype in the in the 70s and 80s for how we think about violent crime. Um, the, the one that I was really thinking about in, in, uh, in relation to this case was the Menendez murders, uh, the, the Jose, Jose and Kitty Menendez who were murdered in Beverly Hills the same year um, in August of 1989 by their sons. Well, let me actually step back for a second to just say that it's important to understand that talk shows were really big at this time. Um, and while prior to that, this moment, like a lot of what we talked about in terms of violent crime on in crime entertainment venues specifically had to do with these stranger crimes. But the general public was getting a lot more interested in like local, like homegrown cases during the mid 80s and through essentially like the early aughts, partly because like people were going, they were doing tell-alls and they were going on talk shows and they were otherwise like exposing their own relationships to these cases to the public. So Betty Broderick goes on Oprah, her children go on Oprah in 1992. And so it's important to just sort of foreground this answer by saying we're getting really not very much information from that kind of interview, but those kinds of interviews become hugely influential sources of information for people at the time who are thinking about crime. So this other case that, that the Menendez brothers case, which it, again, is, it happens in 1989. They also have two trials. It also goes into the early nineties. 
Um, and it's also a story of this like seemingly perfect family that had everything, but something like still goes tragically wrong. Um, both couples are murdered in their homes by family members that they had at some point loved or trust and trusted. Um, and they're also both really intriguing cases because of where they happened. So Dan and Linda Broderick are murdered in their suburban home in wealthy San Diego and the, and Jose and Kitty Menendez in their mansion in Beverly Hills. So both of these stories represented this like particular, like luxurious vision of the American dream. And this vision is like one that not that many Americans have a shot at really, especially in the 1980s when inequality is growing. And so it becomes really fascinating to a general public because people think like, how could you be so rich and like still fuck up your life this bad? How, you know, you have all this money and you still needed to kill your ex-husband. Like she must be crazy. Um, and in that way, like people develop this intimacy with the perpetrator through like consuming these talk shows, but also maintain a really respectable distance as a spectator. That's where that spectacle thing comes into. It's both a spectacle in that it's like being watched, but there are people watching it. There are spectators. Um, and so because they have that distance, they're able to like judge choices and pretend that if they were in the situation, they would have done something differently. What is it about this particular case that really struck you in your research? So I think one of the most central pieces of this story is that Betty Broderick, um, her identity and her experiences as a white woman are what make people first, it, what makes the story first resonate on like a broad, broad level. So women like her latched onto this story because it reflected back to them a lot of their own experiences and feelings, perhaps even some of their own like revenge fantasies about their lives and their relationships. So many women felt that they had also built their husband's careers, that they were underappreciated, that, you know, they'd been left by their husbands for younger women. And this is all happening in like the post second wave feminism era, which like second wave feminism was very rights focused. And by the 80s and 90s, feminism is starting to mean something different. It's starting to mean having everything, having it all, being able to have a job and a family, be the perfect wife and mother and have a perfect professional career. And like that shift seemed like liberation at first, but it turns out to be really frustrating for a lot of women because suddenly declaring yourself a feminist means that you're responsible for like way more, but you don't have any added support, right? And Betty Broderick, it's clear from what I've seen, the, the sources that I've consulted, that she was really happy when she was able to stop working and she was able to be a full-time wife and mother after her husband um, started to make more money. But she still felt a lot of pressure to do that perfectly and to be like a superwoman in that way. Oprah, in her interview, referred to her as a super mom. Um, and Betty describes feeling like really she was a single parent and that her husband was not there, which resonated with a lot of women. But it's also really important to point out that that image of like who could be a superwoman was really limited in that it excluded poor women. It excluded women who worked multiple jobs, who were single mothers, who were not sexually interested in men, um, who were unattractive, seen as unattractive, or otherwise just seen as unable to keep a husband. So it's really important to think of Betty Broderick's like whiteness and her wealth as central to this story. Think of how the media or the general public might have reacted if she had been black or if she were on welfare. So, 
you know, the first major point that I want to make really is that her gender, her race and her class, her position as a wealthy white woman was central to this story because of like how the public had access to it and how they were able to identify with her. Have you found some kind of common commonality between people who are experiencing these long drawn out divorce battles like Betty and Dan's. Have you seen that that tends, I guess I'm saying like, I've noticed that it can spark terrible violence between ex-spouses. My research mostly does focus on stranger crime. So I don't want to like be out of my lane here, but I think that like this case and also the, Eric and Lyle Menendez are, are men. They're not, they're not women, but they are like seen as boys. They're seen as like children in the way that that case is portrayed. And so it's really interesting that in both cases, um, Betty Broderick and the Menendez brothers alleged that abuse had pushed them to the edge and that they really had no other way to address this abuse other than through violence. And, you know, really importantly, Betty in particular felt unprotected by the criminal legal system because her ex-husband occupied this like super high power position within it. She said in an interview, uh, quote, I felt that he was all powerful in the legal system. And she used the term legal abuse when she talked about the way that her divorce happened, that she felt disempowered because of his control of funds that she couldn't get, she couldn't find a lawyer. Um, And so... I want to also point to like issues within the criminal legal system and how this is not really helping her or people like her. Uh, a lot of the conversation around this murder, um, both in the trial but also in the media, was about intention and her. Did she? Did she intend? Did she mean to kill them? Did she want to kill them? Um, her first trial resulted in a mistrial, I, I believe, because of these issues of intent. People were, you know, didn't feel comfortable saying, "Yeah, she definitely wanted to." Um, but really, intent is not actually a super useful frame for thinking about violence when you're talking about like interpersonal abuse, because Betty repeatedly expressed that she felt she didn't have control, that she wasn't being heard. And the explanation for bringing the gun in the first place for her was to force them to listen to her and to prevent them from calling the police, because Dan had made it clear that she couldn't compete with them in court and that he had friends in high places. So she really felt like she didn't have an outlet. So in that sense, The criminal legal system here, and I think this is often probably true within divorce cases that have to do with abuse, the criminal legal system failed her from the beginning because it didn't provide her a refuge from like the influence of her ex-husband, who she claimed was abusing her. Um, So I guess the focus on intent is interesting because a lot of folks didn't believe her story. Because it was difficult, it was just really difficult to understand why you would go to your ex-husband's house with a gun if you didn't want to kill him. Um, but then I think the way that the story got twisted around in the media was also influenced by a broader, like victims rights movement, um, which I'm happy to talk more about. It becomes a really big thing in the nineties. Um, but also in the eighties that basically there are these people who are lobbying for crime entertainment venues to start focusing more on the stories of victims rather than the stories of perpetrators. And you can see this in the Oprah interview as well, because Oprah says, Hang on, I have the quote. Oprah says uh, of Dan and Linda, of course, the victims of the murder, they're not here to tell their side of the story. Everything I've heard is that they felt abused by you. Um, 
which whether or not Betty Broderick was abused is like really damaging sort of victim blaming language about about abuse that makes it difficult for women to come out and talk about these things happening to them. So I think that there is a way that cases like this take really interpersonal issues between people and they make them amplified in such a way that, you know, once you inject this into the criminal legal system, there are different different consequences for everything that happens in an interpersonal relationship. Um, and then I'll also point out, <laughs> I'm just rambling at this point, but I'll, I'll, Please. <laughs> I'll also say that, like, I don't know how or when she obtained a weapon, but it was pretty common for women to buy guns during the 1980s, especially for protection. Um, and it, it, it makes sense for someone who experiences abuse to want protection, but Obviously, this never would have happened if she didn't have a gun. Um, a weapon escalates every single situation. So that might be one of the answers, <laughs> you know, kind of a cop out. But to say a gun is is an issue. Guns? Yeah. <laughs> guns? Just every everyone having guns, apparently? Yeah. Put it on the board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that we did it. You know, huge oversight, I'm realizing. <laughs> So Betty's second trial was the first to be broadcast live on court TV. Mm-hmm. How did this kind of new media coverage and murder cases shape society's current fascination with true crime? Yeah. Oh, man, I love this question. So um, this is some, something I'm still kind of working on. But basically, people began to have a, a new window into this whole world that they didn't know before. And that suddenly had become really interesting because over the course of the seventies and the eighties, all of these wild crimes happened. And so like the police became celebrities in a lot of ways and, and lawyers became celebrities in a lot of ways. And suddenly with court TV and with these live trials, you have people who are able to actually like understand the language that they're using, that they're hearing Um, And the effect from that, there are so many, but one of the most important is that that, um, the way that expertise is used in the courts becomes the way for people to understand, like, what happened in a crime. So, for example, you have forensic experts. Um, Forensics gets really, that's sort of more in the 90s, especially with the OJ trial, you get a lot of conversations around forensics, but once someone can actually watch an entire trial and they can they can listen to what experts are saying, they then un- they then think that they are an expert. <laughs> a consumer can then say, "Well, this forensic person told me that if blood does this, it means that it was definitely a hammer that was used." And they don't necessarily have a critical eye because this is the first time that people are able to mass consume trials they don't have a critical eye to say like oh the prosecution like chose this person who are they what is their qualifications what are they talking about like how much do they know about this case that's just not something that we as americans <laughs> at least in the 80s 70s 80s 90s were really doing that often with our media we weren't necessarily saying like wait a minute <laughs> like who, who's doing this who's putting this on it was just there was so much and so you could sort of choose what you were watching so i think that like There was this whole media revolution and entertainment revolution in the 80s, especially because that's when you get cable that kind of diffuses the information in such a way that it all seems true or it all seems real. And you can just kind of choose to believe what you want. And so it did have really important 
um, like tangible effects too, because once people start believing in forensic science so much, if you have someone come along and say like, actually, this is fake, this doesn't make sense, the science isn't right, um, no one will believe them. The general public doesn't believe them anymore because they're like, well, we've been, we've been watching this on TV for 20 years. Are you telling me that blood spatter analysis is not real? And then they're all, you also get this interesting, um, this interesting thing. Some legal scholars have started to write about this a little bit that like juries expect more evidence than is generally possible in a trial because they're used to watching like whatever criminal minds or something. <laughs> and they're surprised that actually like a lot of the evidence used to convict people is like quite tenuous. And so juries are expecting like, you know, his fingerprint was here on the body and blah, blah, blah. Like all these sort of like ways that like true crime entertainment and like actual, the actual criminal legal system combine to confuse the public about what is actually going on. Are you saying I need to put Olivia Benson up on the board? <laughs> Wait, who is Olivia Benson? <laughs> SVU. Oh, yes. Law and Order SVU. <laughs> That's very interesting. Just our expectation of of what what we should expect from a trial now has changed. So I, I'm obsessed with true crime, and uh, you know I uh, consume a lot of podcasts, books, yeah. documentaries, all the stuff, and. You know, I find that my female friends also do the same. Why is it that women seem to be more obsessed with true crime than men? Okay, there are a number of reasons, some of which I'm still figuring out. Um, There are some studies that argue that women are more interested in true crime because it prepares them for violence um, in terms of like, there's a way that women feel that they're learning from consuming true crime. Um, you know, if this guy, this guy's behind a car, then I'm always going to look behind the car, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I personally think that it has much more to do with sort of bur- burrowing yourself in a fear and a trauma that is always around you. Um, women are more likely to be met with violence than men in our society. And so I think that once we become obsessed with the fact that we are extremely vulnerable to violence at all times, it weirdly helps a little bit to consistently consume material about violence against women. It sounds very weird, but it's like a way of um, inoculating yourself to that trauma. But the more material answer, and the one that I think is like most important historically speaking, is that women become producers of true crime. And they are the ones who are really starting to, like, I don't know if you are familiar with Anne Rule. Do you know her? She's a, she was a true crime writer. She's most famous for writing, like, the book on Ted Bundy. And that's because she knew him. She was a crime reporter. And she also worked at a, like, a late night, like, self-help line. Actually, it it may have actually been... I don't remember. I think it was a suicide hotline. I was going to say rape crisis, but I think it was a suicide hotline. And Ted Bundy worked with her and she met him there and they actually became became really close friends. And so she was already a crime writer. And she, after Ted Bundy was captured, she actually continued to exchange letters with him. They were friendly. And she wrote this amazing true crime book called The Stranger Beside Me, which was about like, what is it like to like have this normal person that I know become a monster or or to find out that they're a monster. And she goes on to, to write like 
a hundred books about like either true cases or fictional cases. And she becomes this like massive figure. And then that continues throughout the seventies, eighties and nineties also because a lot of the anti-crime activists who are using these cases to lobby for, you know, harsher sentencing and things like that are also women. They are also themselves survivors of sexual violence or survive or um, knew someone who was murdered and ha- you know by a man or things like that. So there's a way that like the the anti rape movement of the 1970s starts to morph into more of an anti crime victims rights movement in the 80s and 90s that's really led and powered by women. And then you know you think about now. Most recently, we had uh, the Golden State Killer documentary come out. Michelle McNamara. Michelle McNamara is another perfect example of this, of someone who approaches these stories with um, empathy for the people involved. And that really resonates in this genre because there's a desire for true crime consumers to, again, like I said earlier, to have this like intimacy. We want this intimacy. We want to understand. We want to understand what happened to the victim. We want to understand what happened to the perpetrator. And women have been often either the most equipped to tell those stories because of their own experiences or the most driven to tell those stories because they're interested in those interpersonal relationships and the way that people feel. So at the end of the day, if you had to pick one person or thing and and you can choose a concept so you don't have to be bogged down by a person, who or what do you think is to blame for the Betty Broderick murders? Well, okay, I, I do feel compelled to say at First off, that I'm just like extremely allergic to this question of like blaming one thing as a historian. <laughs> um, but if I was going to blame one thing, I'm going to choose a huge umbrella term, which is that I would blame a lack of resources for Betty Broderick. And I mean like a lot of things by that. So, first, I mean a social stigma around issues of abuse and mental illness that denied her like mental health services. And also like a criminal legal system that left her powerless, where her husband occupied this high powered position. Also a lack of community outside of her marriage and family, which like left her feeling like she didn't have anything. And then perhaps most importantly, we've already talked about this. um, I would blame this broader culture in which women felt compelled to set their own hopes and dreams aside to support men. And that's a culture that tends to breed resentment. So I see all of those things as just lacking in support for this person. Um, And I'm sure there are many ways that um, her ex-husband and his new wife also needed support or resources that they didn't have. For example, how do you deal with a woman who's showing up at your house all the time outside of the criminal legal system if the criminal legal system cannot help her? Um, So yeah, I guess I would, I would, I would frame it that way. I will just say like one I want to say one small like example just to illustrate like how common, why her story was so resonant and like how common this is. My dad is a professor. My mom's a nurse and my mom was the working professional when they got married and she put him through graduate school during the 1980s Um, and she worked her ass off and he has made more money than her ever since. And sometimes she's kind of like, sometimes she'll say to me like, he got to be a professor and I didn't try to be a doctor. And, you know, it sort of seems like wishful thinking, but really as a nurse, like she still deals with all kinds of harassment and sexism that 
maybe she wouldn't face if she were her own boss, you know, if she was the doctor. Um, my mom has not killed my dad <laughs> yet over <laughs> this, but, you know, the resentment is there. And I think that's true for a lot of women, especially white women who were working moms in the 80s and 90s. So I guess all of that is to say that, like, as much as we'd really like to write Betty Broderick off as some like evil monster. And even as much as we want to maybe say that Dan and Linda were just flawless innocents, they're all actually just normal people. And that's the case with everyone who commits a violent crime. Violence becomes a solution for Betty because she felt that at the time there were no other options at hand. So let's provide people more options and maybe we won't have crimes like this. Well, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about the Betty Broderick murders and uh, all of your expertise. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And do keep me in mind if you ever want to talk more true crime. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hello, Rebecca. And fact checker, Chris Smith. Hello, Rebecca. <laughs> I wrote down so many things while Alyssa was speaking. I feel like we, we missed a few things up on the board. I think we did. I, she was wonderful and had such an interesting perspective on this. You know, we were coming at it from a different angle. And that's why these guest experts, they're so wonderful. They have such specific areas of expertise. It totally shifts your whole POV. Totally. I mean, she really shed so much light on this case. Agreed. Um, but Rebecca, will you tell everyone how we came to find Alyssa? So we actually 
found Alyssa through our previous guest expert, Kathleen Ballou, and she was the expert on the Oklahoma City bombing episode, who was, she's also fantastic. And I believe Alyssa's one of her students at the University of Chicago. I mean, I, ho- I wish Alyssa was my teacher. She, you put, her, put her up on a podium. Put her, give her a degree. Put her up on a podium. I'm going to call Kathleen after this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do teachers still use podiums? I don't know. We've been out of school for too long. Not anymore, right? I mean, it's all internet now. It's all online. Oh, that's right. <laughs> get her a Zoom number. She can <laughs> get her on a Zoom call. <laughs> So we now, should go through some of the things she said because I have like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, <laughs> eight things that I wrote down. Well, once I saw you guys, because I saw you guys were writing down a lot, so that's why I didn't write anything oh. down. Cool, Chris. Thanks for contributing. <laughs> I also wrote down eight things, Amanda. Oh my God. I wonder if they're all the same. <laughs> Let's say them at the same time. Okay. Ready? Number one. Oprah. Go. Gender, race, and background. <laughs> oh, I have that. I have gender, race, and class. Oh, oh, yeah. That's that's what I meant. Do you I, have Oprah I, on your list? I don't have Oprah on my list. Okay. We, I, I, in my mind, we put her up on the board, but maybe that was just on my notes. I didn't get Oprah up there. I mean, the other thing mm. I have up there, which I would love to send to jail, are the quote super moms. Super moms, such a good term. Such a good term. I didn't put that up, but I did put uh, our obsession with intent. I feel like that really shifted the way I thought about this case because who cares if she... It's not. It's not. Who cares? Obviously, this is a terrible. You know, murder took place. Um, but trying to pin down whether she went to the house to kill or not, it's like she killed. She killed them, and it's like looking at it from a bigger uh, a scope would have been useful. I agree because we'll never know her intent. There is evidence sometimes to support one intent over the other, but either way, it doesn't really matter because there's all this history there that got her to this point. But want to just read through your list of all the things that you have? Okay, yeah. So I have the gender, race, and class, the obsession with intent. I also put down victims in the media, like the media trying to shed more light on victims. Well, she said there was some sort of victims' rights movement, which is so fascinating. That was their cause. So I also put down guns. Normal people thinking they're experts, which I think we've all fallen to, sadly. <laughs> well, maybe we shouldn't put that one in the jail just yet. Maybe not. <laughs> I do see myself as a detective. <laughs> That's like... Um, okay. Ever since we ever ever since we watched, uh, we've been watching Forensic Files, and we learned the term blood spatter. We felt like we're experts over here in the Smith household. Oh no! Look at the spatter. The spatter. Well, for we should we should have put Forensic Files up on the board. They're a court TV, you know, flagship. Um, women getting in uh, the true crime field. Um. Oh, well, I guess this was just a thought. Women getting in the true crime field as a way of controlling the narrative post-crime. So I thought that was so interesting that 
women are mostly the ones who are creating the content, well, not creating the content, but, you know, uh, uh, making the content accessible for these true crime cases. Uh, and, and to me, it just struck me as like, well, of course, it's like women are generally the victims of crime. And therefore, if, if, if this is going to happen to us it's like well at least let us tell the story afterward right <laughs> so <laughs> so the least you could do is, i know <laughs> the very the very it's least the very is... least <laughs> um and then of course i put down lack of resources like she said and i also i this is this might be a, a favorite of mine but also super moms is a favorite now that you brought that up um connecting people's worth with money yeah. America's, you know, because when she was talking about uh, her parents' experience, and it was very similar to Betty's experience, putting him through Dan through college. Um, if if we didn't put so much of of human worth into what your paycheck is at the end of the day, then perhaps there wouldn't have been that like bitterness calling all Clayton's. We're talking about capitalism. I think it's capitalism, but I also think, and she mentioned this early on in the conversation, you could call that the American dream. Ah, mm. for the American male dream. Well, yeah, a nightmare. Wouldn't you say gals <laughs> for us? <laughs> and I think another thing she mentioned was, uh, which we missed for the Clinton scandal was second wave feminism. That's right. That's right. It's it's interesting how that informs this case, right? Just having learned about that, it kind of like makes us think about this case a little differently. Like a surfer, sometimes you have to look at a wave coming your way and decide this isn't the right wave for me. You let it go. That's what <laughs> feminists should have done with the second, the second wave. <laughs> the second wave. Well, they should have got dunked under. <laughs> <laughs> they should have dunked under the second wave. I don't think you're understanding how waves work. <laughs> no, I think I get it. I no, think I get it. <laughs> I think you need one wave to cause another wave. He's leaning into that wave. surfer persona. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> Ever since they t- told him he was blonde, he sounded blonde. <laughs> Look, we got to hang 10 on this subject, guys. Okay? <laughs> no! What a nightmare. It's, otherwise, we're going to have some gnarly scars. Oh, Chris. Wait, but uh, Amanda, I want to hear what you had up on the board. It was basically everything you said. I just added in Oprah, the American dream. Um, yeah, I had the victims' rights thing and super moms. But otherwise, yeah, we have basically a whole new board here. So what do we think? I don't I know, mean, because just a reminder, we did, we sent Betty Broderick to jail. And I believe we gave um, Dan Broderick the big, the big slap. slap. So we went really literal with this one, which I don't mind, but I don't know. What do you think, Rebecca? Yeah, we never go literal. And this time we did. And our guest expert was like, you shouldn't have gone literal. (laughs) I don't know that she said we shouldn't have gone literal. It's more like, look, the actual murder. I mean, it's pretty cut and dry, right? Betty Broderick did it. She deserves uh, her punishment. However, the broader topics are way more engaging. That's sort of what, um, you know, what's worth sort of a 
podcasting about, right? So, you know, I, I'm not sure we should reconsider our vote. Obviously, it's up to you, Rebecca. But in my mind, you know, worthy of discussion are all these other topics. However, um, Betty still needs to go behind bars. I don't know. What do you think? Well, the guest expert did say lack of resources, which I like. And I think we've really touched on that in our episode. And maybe the fact that we've now touched on it is enough. That was exactly my thought, Amanda, where perhaps we keep Betty in, in our jail and we keep the sla- our, our slapping hand on Dan and we just uh, like announce that like we need better resources for this to not ha- This is what we're learning from this case. You know, it's it's a formal announcement here at the Alarmist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I like that. <laughs> um, so, okay. Well, we're sticking to it. That's that's odd. That's odd. So, Oprah, huh, Amanda? You're still mad about her. Well, I I, I like Oprah. Don't get me wrong, but I do think okay. there's a, a way. I think it would be fine to have Oprah in jail. Mm -hmm. i mean i i would i would blame court tv before i blame oprah i think although she does have a huge pull she has a huge pull there's something about those people at court tv that really give me the willies right just that the fact that they take these isolated cases and you can draw up any old commentary you want uh out of it and it just kind of it's kind of creepy and also the the um, Alyssa's uh, point about um, sort of the victim movement, like that still needs work, right? We're always so obsessed with the perpetrators of these violent crimes. And uh, yeah, it makes for interesting, you know, conversation and sort of, you know, you wonder what, you know, what the human mind is capable of and all that stuff. But um, yeah, I feel like so much more attention should be paid to uh, the victims um, of these crimes. Right. Yeah. I think it goes both ways because you can't have one without the other. So it, it, sometimes by ignoring the perpetrator, you, it, you don't fix the problem mm. also. Cause it's like, it's easy to write Betty Broderick off as a psychopath. But what Alyssa was saying was like, she, they're both just normal people who didn't get the help that they needed. And the scariest thought and why I think Betty Broderick has become this sort of cult icon you know the patron saint of a woman scorned i think as Cass said is that we can see ourselves in her yeah right it is it's it's scary i mean i not not fully but a little bit well when rebecca (laughs) rubs pie or when she's mad and rubs pie all over the walls it's usually an apple or a blueberry she's never gotten them a little blueberry You know, I think I'm more like a young Betty Broderick. I'm the super mom Betty Broderick. (laughs) You haven't quite turned yet. I haven't turned. (laughs) Matt Matt hasn't betrayed you adequately enough so that you really go crazy. But it's in there. It's in there somewhere. I always say, and I've got it on a mug, I've got it all. A husband, a career, a headache. Uh, I'm going to get you a, a very controversial mug that says a young Betty Broderick. Young Betty Broderick. Uh, <laughs> or a Betty Broderick type. Yeah, Betty Broderick type. I'd love that. Um, well, 
We did it again. Are there any other uh, matters we need to we go over? <laughs> well, we did it again. Um, uh, yes, a couple Another of podcast. announcements. A couple of announcements. If you haven't heard, we've got merch. So, and it's, it's not just any merch. It is really classy, like very handsome, stylized merch. So go to erios.net slash shop. Check out the Alarmist merch. It's a great way to support the podcast. And you get a little treat, too. Um also, right. uh, also, we want to do another live show. We're thinking about doing it Halloween themed. So if you have ideas for a Halloween themed disaster, fictional maybe, or real, I think send us an email. That's right. I mean, we could we could cover perhaps, you know, Jaws or The Purge. Or like or Michael Myers. The- yeah. yeah. Or like, what about the breakup of the Smashing Pumpkins? That's kind of on theme, <laughs> That's, right? I guess. Yeah, the pumpkins. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that could be good. Um, and also, we have a, what's this website called that we have now? A Discord? Oh, yeah. Discord. We're still figuring out what that is, but the youngins, I think they're all up on that. It's like a gaming thing. So da- it's a platform. It's like a it's a community where we can all essentially it's like Slack, but we'll be on a podcast text chain, but it won't be as bothersome as if and you won't have to give out your phone number. But it will be fun for us to communicate with you. So download the Discord app and then click the link in our show notes, the invite link, and so we can all be in touch. And other than that, I just want to ask people to rate and review because it really helps the podcast and we read your reviews and they they make our days. So if you haven't already, please, please rate and review. We do so much for you. This is truly the, the least you can do. <laughs> don't we do so much for you, just like Betty. She did so <laughs> yes. much for Dan. Yes, you don't I work all so, day. And then I have to post these podcasts and you know, it just you don't want to see me snap. <laughs> That's great. It's a good reminder. Well, Thank you, everyone. Have a great one. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.